As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found us out, but your commandments are our delight. Our tes- your testimonies are righteous forever, and so we pray that you would give us understanding that we may live. With our whole hearts we cry, answer us, O Lord. We will keep your statutes. We call to you, save us that we may observe your testimonies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. This evening, as I said, we're going to consider Christian discipline from God's Word, but we want, and we want to do that from 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, but that's really the second part of the story. If we really want to understand the first part of this story and this story as a whole, we really need to begin our time in 1 Corinthians 5. And so if you'd turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13, and when we get done reading there, then we'll go to our text that's in the bulletin, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. We'll spend most of our time thinking about the passage from 2 Corinthians, but we want to see both aspects of this story this evening. So 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 13. Now let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then if you would turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to read just a few verses there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians 2 beginning at verse 5, we read, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. I thought it would be good for us to consider these passages in connection with the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Because we have in these two passages the story both of a sinner who has had the keys of the kingdom exercised against him, closing the kingdom of heaven to him, and also the glorious story of how that person repented of their sins and then once again had the kingdom of heaven opened to him. Um, And that's really the story that we are reading here, the story of Paul instructing them to put the person out of the church and so exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven to exclude that person, just as we read from question 85. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and how after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. And we see that that's what happened in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul, coming as a minister who who was ordained by God with authority, had come to the church and instructed them about how to handle this particular disciplinary case and to purge the evil from among you, to put the person out of the church. And thereby, the kingdom of heaven was closed against that person. But we also know that we testify that the purpose of discipline is to close the kingdom of heaven against the unrepentant. But if someone turns back to God, uh, we may not leave them shut out. Uh, We have to welcome them back in. That's always the glorious hope connected with church discipline, that we may again welcome the person back, uh, as happens in 2 Corinthians, um, the glorious truth of the opening of the kingdom. And that is also there at the end of question 85. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. So Paul's teaching us here how we should think about the exercise of the, king, of the keys of the kingdom in the church, particularly as it comes to Christian discipline. Um, and these things are good for us to think about before we have a case of discipline before us. Um, just as sometimes when, when bad things are happening in life, that's a tough time to try to learn the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of God's providence. Uh, so also it's hard sometimes to think about Christian discipline as God has instituted it when you're in the midst of a sad and difficult case of discipline. And so I thought it would be good for us to pause and to think about this and to see how it works itself out in this passage. Paul really teaches the the church here how we should exercise the keys of the kingdom, how we should receive back a repentant sinner. Um, And how does Paul teach us this in the passage? Well, we see first a satisfied purpose in Christian discipline. Uh, Second, we see a saving plea that is made to the church on the repentant sinner's behalf. And then Paul gives us a sobering perspective on the importance of forgiveness and reception. And that's why I want to think about this passage this evening. A satisfied purpose, a saving plea, and a sobering perspective. Uh, That's how Paul teaches us about the use 
of Christian discipline. First, he starts with a satisfied purpose. This person, this is the traditional view of these passages, that the same person that's being thought about in chapter 1 or in 1 Corinthians 5 is the same person being dealt with in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think that's the right interpretation. It's the ancient interpretation. And I think it's the most helpful way for us to approach this passage. It's the same person in both. And Paul has, has talked in, in very serious terms in the first text about the discipline to be applied to this person, how they are to be purged from among them. But what does he say in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2? For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What has happened to this person has been sufficient to accomplish the purpose for which God ordained Christian discipline. Um, Christ ordained in Matthew 18 this process of going to someone and showing their sin and trying to win them back. And the purpose is always that the sinner would see their sin, repent of their sin, and return to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Um, And so what Paul is gloriously saying here in verse 6 is, the punishment by the church, the punishment by the majority is enough. It's been sufficient. It's done the work that God wants it to do in the world. It's something to be celebrated by the church, uh, that the purposes of discipline have been accomplished in this person. And that would you know, cause us to ask then, what are the purposes of Christian discipline? Why, why do we do it? How should we think about this? And what do we learn from these passages about discipline and its purposes? So Paul says the purpose has been satisfied. It's sufficient now. Um, we should want to know, okay, well then what, what is the purpose? What are we really after in Christian discipline? What does God's word Tell us, and I think Calvin has a very John Calvin has a very fine summary of what the purposes of Christian discipline are from these passages. Uh, what, what is the first purpose of Christian discipline? It's the glory of Christ's name. It's the glory of Christ's name that that be honored and protected. Uh, Calvin writes. The first purpose is that they who lead a filthy and infamous life may not be called Christians to the dishonor of God as if his holy church were a conspiracy of wicked and abandoned men. For since the church itself is the body of Christ, it cannot be corrupted by such foul and decaying members without some disgrace falling upon Christ its head. Therefore, that there may be no such thing in the church to brand its most sacred name with disgrace, they from whose wickedness infamy redounds to the Christian name must be banished from its family." That's part of the outrage we saw about Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 about this sin. He said, this is something the pagans don't even tolerate. And you're tolerating it in the church. You're allowing this person to go forth and bear the name of Christ when they're doing something that even the pagans wouldn't do. Even the pagans wouldn't accept. Um, That drags the name of Christ through the mud, And so one of the purposes in church discipline is to try to uphold the glory of Christ's name, to make sure that his name is protected. You can hear in that Paul's appeal for the name of the Lord. So the the glory of the Lord, the honor of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has to be safeguarded in the church, and that's one of the reasons for church discipline. The second reason for church discipline, the second purpose, is for the purity of the church, um, Calvin writes, sec- the second purpose is that the good not be corrupted by the constant company of the wicked, as commonly happens. 
For such is our tendency to wander from the way, there is nothing easier than for us to be led away by bad examples. And how how does that teaching come from Scripture? Well, that's exactly what Paul says about the nature of the sin, right? It's like leaven in a lump. It's like yeast in dough. What, what, What do you expect to happen when you put yeast in dough? You expect it to get everywhere in the dough, right? To leaven the whole lump. I'm not a baker, but I'm told that's how it works. Um, it gets in everywhere, and, that's, and sin can be like that. It can get in everywhere, and people can follow bad examples, either when it comes to the way they're living or the things that they're believing. People can hear it, they can see it, and they can go along with it. Right? Paul uses the same image when he speaks to the Galatians about the, the, the bad teachings that they're beginning to adopt. What does he say in Galatians 5, 7 through 9? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? Whether it's wicked conduct or wicked teaching, that can permeate throughout the church. Other people can be persuaded. They can be led astray. And so for the sake of the church, the person has to be purged from among them. We don't want people to be taken in and to follow the same kinds of bad examples. And we should be in fear lest those things befall us. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So we do these things for the glory of Christ's name, for the purity of his church, and finally, and, and very importantly, for the recovery of the sinner. It has a purpose for the Lord, it has a purpose for the church, and it has a purpose for the sinner. What are we hoping for the sinner? That they would be recovered. That the seriousness of the discipline might cause them to return to the Lord. Calvin writes, the third purpose is that those overcome by shame for their baseness begin to repent. Uh, This was Paul's goal as he states it in 1 Corinthians 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The discipline is not about shaming the sinner. Um, The purpose is not to shame them. The purpose is not to shun them. What are we trying to do? We're trying to impress upon them the seriousness of their sin. Because what do we all need to do when we find ourselves in our sins? We need to become ashamed of it. We need to become sorry for it so that that would prompt us to go to the Lord and confess it and find forgiveness. Um, The goal is not to shame them. The goal is not to put them out of the church. The goal is that they might be recovered, that this might help them to be recovered. Um, in 2 Thessalonians three fourteen and 15, Paul says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Right? And what are we hoping that that shame will accomplish? Well, he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. Um, that it would provoke godly sorrow for sin. Right? As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Those are the purposes for discipline. 
What Paul is wonderfully telling us here in 2 Corinthians, these purposes have been accomplished in this person. The Christian discipline we've done, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, has served to protect the glory of Christ's name. It has served to protect the purity of the church. And wonderfully, it served to recover the sinner. The punishment has been sufficient. It's been enough. It's accomplished the purpose. And because the purpose has been satisfied, Paul can make the saving plea to the Corinthians. Now that the punishment has been enough, what are they to do with regard to this person who's repented of his sin and returned to Christ? Well, Paul makes the saving plea he makes to the church in verses 7 and 8 of 2 Corinthians 2. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Call this a saving plea, not because we have the power to save sinners. We can't save sinners. Only Jesus can do that by the power of his Holy Spirit. But why is this a saving plea to the church? The church can't save the sinner from his sins, but what can the church do? The church can save him from being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Um, this This is a serious sin that's been committed, and there's a serious danger that this sinner is facing, that he's so sorry now for his sins that there's a danger he might become overwhelmed by his sorrow. Um, That word overwhelmed, you know, to be engulfed, to be swallowed up, just sort of like we saw this morning with the danger of the ship being swallowed up by the waves that the disciples were on. So too, this sinner is in danger, even though he's repentant of being swallowed up by the sorrow he's experiencing over his sins. Um, and we can see why that would happen. It was, a, it was a very public sin. It caused very public harm in the church. It was a harmful thing for the church to have to endure that. It was a harmful thing for them to have to, to hear from Paul that they're, they're mishandling the situation. These, situ- these things always cause heartache. They always cause trouble in the church. And so you can imagine this sinner thinking, how do I face the church after what I've done? Now that I've kind of returned to myself like the prodigal son and realized where I am and who I am and what I've done, how do I go back? You can see how there would be a real danger of this person being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so what does Paul want the church to do with regard to this sinner? What is the saving plea he makes to them? He says, I really want you really need to do three things for them. He's not ordering them to do it as the apostle. He's, he's pleading with them. Right, pleading with them, exhorting them, I beg you to do this. And what does he ask the church to do? He first asks them to forgive. And then he asks them to comfort. And then he asks them to reaffirm their love. Forgive him, comfort him, and reaffirm your love for him. Um, what does a person who's caught in sin need. They need forgiveness when they've confessed their sins. And Paul has to exhort them to be forgiving because forgiveness can be very hard. Um, We all know that by experience. When we've been sinned against and someone has realized their sin and come and sought forgiveness, how hard it is to forgive. Because we've really been hurt. Um, There's been real damage done by sin. Forgiveness is very difficult 
Um, I think that's why Paul begins by saying, you have to know that the punishment is enough. This person doesn't need more punishing. What they need is forgiving. Uh, They need the church to have a forgiving spirit towards that person. Um, Forgiveness is hard um, because I think sometimes we think forgiveness is primarily a feeling. I can forgive you when I feel like forgiving you. Well, of course, we know that if you wait till you feel like forgiving someone, you may never forgive that person. Um, Forgiveness is very difficult, but what must we do? We must understand not only is forgiveness a feeling, but it's a commitment that we make. I like how people have said it. You really have to make three promises when you forgive someone. A promise not to bring up the offense against the sinner again to use it as leverage. Um, Not to do that. We promise that we won't bring up the offense to other people and slander the person who sinned against us. And maybe the most difficult of the promises we make is that we promise not to dwell on it ourselves and let it interfere with the relationship with that person. That's, that's how we see how difficult forgiveness is. But that's what God calls us to do. That's why it's not just an event. You just, don't just decide to forgive one day. It's a process. It's a process that we have to continue to go through to remember those promises. So to forgive truly, we have to continually remind ourselves of those promises. To know that just saying, I forgive you, is not enough. We have to continue to try for ourselves to be forgiving. And if that's important when a personal sin has happened, how much more important is that when there's a sin that's happened against the whole church? Right? Paul says, this wasn't a sin that was primarily a harm to me. He was harmed in it. But who was primarily harmed, he says in verse 5. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Um, The whole church has been hurt. That's why the whole church is going to need to forgive him. To recognize that what we've ultimately wanted, even in the midst of hurt for this poor sinner, is for them to turn and be repentant of their sins to seek God again and to return to Christ. And that person has done that. And if God has forgiven him, how can we not forgive him? Right? The offense against God is far greater. Right? Sin, when it offends God, is an eternal offense against his eternal majesty. It's far greater than when someone sins against us. And it's far more costly for God to forgive. Right? We, we, we hear those three promises, we say, well, pastor, that's really hard. Yeah, forgiveness is hard. But it's still not as difficult as it was for God, who as a just and holy God could only forgive if His justice was satisfied. And who sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, so that He could be just and the justifier of those who put their faith and trust in Christ. It's a way of saying, if God can forgive, how can we withhold forgiveness? If God has let it go, how can we not let it go? Um, Forgiveness is so important to receive back someone who's truly repentant, who is sorry, to forgive. The church needs to forgive. That's how they'll save this person from being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. They'll save him by forgiving him, and they'll save him by comforting him. What does someone who's excessively sorrow, sorrowing over their sins need to hear? They need to hear the good news of the gospel. They need to hear the hope that we have 
in Christ. That God is willing to be found by sinners who turn to him. That he's a God who delights to show steadfast love. He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who when he sees his son coming, despite all the offense the son has committed against him, when he still sees him a far way off, he runs to meet him. That we encourage one another to remember. That's how God receives the repentant sinner. He's glad to see us. He runs to meet us in our repentance. He's never a God who is, okay, fine, you finally came back. Um, What do you think of yourself now? That's not how God deals with sinners. We need to comfort one another with that hope we have, that we have a forgiving God, that we have a loving God, a God who's willing to be found by those who seek Him who is for us and not against us. Paul says you'll save this person from excessive sorrow by forgiving them and comforting them, reminding them of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that's what we want to do, to remind people, to point them again and again to the God who forgives with promises like those made in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We can all be comforters in the Christian life. We can all comfort one another with the hopes and the promises of God in Jesus Christ. That's part of the function we have as a church, why it's important to be in a church, to be part of a family of God, so there's someone there to encourage you and build you up when you're down. It's not something you can do for yourself all the time. That's what Paul had instructed the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. It's one of the glories of the church, and especially important when someone has come back from sin, um, will come back from discipline. So we're to forgive the sinner, comfort the sinner, and reaffirm our love for the sinner. Reaffirm here has this sort of sense of an official resolution. Um, to cause someone to recognize the reality of something or to show something to be real. We could translate Paul as saying to them, I urge you to show that your love for the sinner is real or that you actually do love him. Show this person that you actually do love him. How do we do that in church with a, with a Christian discipline case that, that comes back? We, we do that by word, right? We, we have a word. There, there's a form for excommunication. It's a sad form to have to read about a sinner who refuses to listen to the church. But we also have a form for readmission. When someone has been excommunicated and they're brought back in, that's a way of the church officially reaffirming love for this person. To say that they're being received back in the name of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is being opened to them. We do that for the sinner by our words, but we also know that we do that by our deeds. We show in our words and in our deeds that we love the sinner. uh, That we show our love in how we relate to them. Um, And this word love is a special word in the scriptures. 
I heard R.C. Sproul say once, if you've been a Christian for six months, someone has told you about the different kinds of love that are used in the scriptures. So I'm going to assume this is remedial for many of us. But you know that in scriptures, there's different words that are used for love. There's eros, which is a kind of romantic love. There is phileo, that's kind of a brotherly love, like Philadelphia. Um, And then there is agape, which we could say is a Christian love. A sense in which that only really exists in the Christian church. Um, A special kind of love that God works in it. And we see that importance of this word, like how one person put it. The primary importance of agape in the thought of Paul, not to mention the New Testament as a whole, must not be overlooked. Right? Agape, love, is the fulfillment of God's law in Romans 13.10. Of the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian character, it receives the pride of place in Galatians 5.22. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Right? The other things follow, but what is, what is first? What has the pride of place? It's love. It's agape love. Love is the way of excellence. Right? When talking about all the Christian gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul ends by saying, I'm going to show you a more excellent way before he goes into the wonderful passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. This person goes on to say, of the three qualities that abide, faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. Love is the greatest of the gifts of the Spirit. Faith and hope are under the sign of this passing age. Love never faileth. Love is the power of the coming age already breaking into this world. For Paul, as for Jesus, love is the only life force that has a future in this age of death. Isn't that a wonderful way of thinking about love in that sense? It's the only life force in this world that has a future. Um, Faith doesn't last because faith becomes sight in the world to come. Hope doesn't last because hope becomes reality. You don't hope for the things you have. But love never fails. Love for God, love for one another, that will continue on forever. It's the power of the age to come breaking in on this present evil age. And it begins already for us now in the church. And that's the task of the church, to show the power of this kind of love in our own lives and in our own relationships. To show that that Christian love is the unfailing, still more excellent way. The way of heaven brought to bear in the world here and now. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. To help this sinner not be overcome by excessive sorrow by experiencing even now the love with which God loves us. And to be instruments of showing that love to each other. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do. To help a recovering sinner in this way. And to be part of their being recovered into the family of God. To really save them from excessive sorrow. And Paul ends not only with the glory of what this is is supposed to do, but also by giving us a sobering perspective on what it means to not forgive. What it means to withhold forgiveness and maintain an unforgiving spirit even in the face of obvious repentance. 
Um, One person put it this way, it's not only the proper work of Christian love to show love to one another, but when we show it, it serves to repulse the God of this age who will otherwise gain an advantage. Paul ends by reminding us that Satan is out there using his devices to try to outwit the church. And there is a danger in a lack of forgiveness in the church to allow Satan to outwit us by his schemes. And forgiveness, receiving back, loving, forgiving, comforting, these are all defenses against the devil's devices. Um, Paul wants forgiveness. Uh, Just as Paul led out in putting the person out of the church, so he also leads out in loving. He's exhorting them to do it. And he says, if you forgive him, I'll forgive him. I'm going to maintain that forgiving spirit as well. Um, that's, what, that's kind of his point in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul is sincerely forgiving, even though this caused him a lot of problems and the church he loved a lot of problems. He is being sincere in forgiveness because Paul knows that the unforgiving spirit, the alternative, allows the devil an inroad against him. He knows what the devil will do. And he knows that unforgiveness towards truly repentant sinners is not good for us. That's why we urge forgiveness, not just because it's the right thing to do, it's obedience to God, but because unforgiveness is harmful to us. Someone has written, the poison, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping to make someone else die. Um, we understand the foolishness of that, right? I hate this person so much, I'm going to drink poison. Like, okay, well, that, I think you need to rethink the plan. That's not going to work out real well. Right? And, and I, that's right. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping to kill somebody else. What will unforgiveness do to us if we refuse to make those promises that we talked about? If you're going to hold on to someone's sin so that you can use it for leverage against them, it will just make you a manipulator. Right? If you continue to bring up sin to everyone else around when someone's repented and tried to forgive it, but you keep mentioning it around, what does that make us? It makes us slanderers and gossips. And if we continue to let it go and we, are, we insist on meditating it in our own hearts, what, does that, what will that make us? It will make us murderers towards that person. We'll murder them in our heart unwilling to forgive them. Someone who's a manipulator, a slanderer, and a murderer, who does that sound like? It doesn't sound like Jesus. It sounds like the devil. This is the devil's way. Not only is unforgiveness bad for our souls, it's one of the ways the devil will try to trip up the church. Because the devil loves taking something that's good and twisting it into something that's evil. He will come to us in our unforgiveness and say to us, you're just zealous for the purity of the church. You're just being zealous for the name of the Lord. That's why you should never forgive that person. Because you really care about God. You really care about His glory. You really care about His purity. You really care about the seriousness of sin. That's why you should treat Him so harshly. Right? He loves to take a good end and twist it into something evil. 
throw yourself off the top of the temple and the, and the angels will come and catch you. Um, Satan turns, loves to turn good things into evil things. And Paul says we can't allow this, the devil to, unwit us, to outwit us, to trick us into thinking that because we're pursuing a good end, it justifies wrong means. Wrong means to a good end are wrong. They're not to be done. And the devil would want us to be so harsh in our discipline that we would deny the repentant sinner all hope of divine mercy and restoration. And Paul says we can't let, them, we can't let that happen. We don't want the person to be overwhelmed by, by, uh, by excessive sorrow and be accomplices to the devil. We don't want that to happen. Like how one person put it, to bring, this is my last long quote, to bring a fellow Christian to a state of blank despair because of discipline which despite manifest repentance is applied with unrelenting vigor is to yield ground to the enemy and to allow him to seize what does not belong to him. To take by sin is his proper work. The ancient preacher Chrysostom reminds us, to take by repentance, however, is more than is due, for ours, not his, is that weapon. He's saying to take by sin, that's the devil's business. The devil has no business taking someone who's repentant. That's not his weapon, like how Chrysostom said. That's not his weapon. Repentance is our weapon against him. Um, And we can't allow him to have that. And that's the beauty of what Paul says. Having delivered this man to Satan for a time, for the destruction of his flesh, that he might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus, he's now to be enfolded again in the people of God and protected from the devil. He's now to be denied to the devil by the church. And the way we do that is by forgiveness. That's how we keep the devil from outwitting us. By doing what God has called us to do the way God has called us to do it with truth, and also with love. So that the truly repentant sinner would be embraced by the fellowship of Christ's church and defended against all of Satan's devices. That's what we want to see in Christian discipline. To close only so that we would be able to open again. So the person would come to the kingdom of heaven. And may we always maintain that attitude of of wanting and being willing and ready to receive back repentant sinners when they return to the Lord. And may it be our constant prayer that all those who have been separated from the church, who have been put out, God would work on by His Spirit to call them back, that we might welcome them back into the church with forgiveness and comfort and reaffirmed love. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this teaching of how you've given to your church to help sinners. And we pray, Lord, that we would be wise in the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, that we would never seek to use them for our own purposes, but only for yours. And that when it produces repentance in brothers and sisters who've fallen even into serious sins, whether it's in doctrine or in life, that we would be always ready to receive them back. We pray that you would create in us a forgiving spirit to remind us that since we have been forgiven much, we should be able to forgive those who sin against us. And when we do that, we are behaving like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray you would help us in these things. 
Maybe many of us are thinking of people who, who in the past have been put out of the church by Christian discipline and the heartache that we have borne about those, those brothers and sisters. We pray, Lord, that you would yet deliver them, uh, that they would yet be received back into the church, that they would not walk in the darkness and be overcome by their sins, but that they might return to Christ, the shepherd and overseer of their souls, and that we might rejoice in that day and have the privilege of forgiving them and comforting them, and reaffirming our love for them. Uh, May you grant that, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.